This is the CJSR edition. I'm Matt Hergy. It took Joe Clark just 39 years to get into the prime minister's it's the office. CJSR edition. He was, and still is, the youngest prime minister ever in Canadian history. It was June of 1979, and things were looking good for the honest-to-goodness politician from High River, Alberta. It was obviously a great honor, and that is a day of honor. And I had a great sense of honor, uh, one would, that um, uh, I had uh, won an election, uh, a fair, free election against a formidable ally, and that we had changes that we uh, uh, should undertake. But before Joe Clark could say head smashed in buffalo jump, his party was abruptly ejected from Parliament. A budget bill calling for short-term pain for long-term gain was voted down. And on March 3, 1980, just 273 days after he took office, an eviction notice arrived to 24 Sussex Drive. It was a political blunder that in retrospect, the Right Honorable Joe Clark chalks up to the oversights of youthful naivety. I probably, in retrospect, I should have taken more account of the dynamics of a minority parliament, uh, but I was 39 at the time, or just 40. It's the CJSR edition. On this week's episode of the CJSR edition, 33 years after he vacated the PM's chair, the Right Honorable Joe Clark sits down with me in the CJSR studios for an extended interview. As it turns out, in those 33 years, Joe Clark has accomplished quite a lot. He was elected to Canadian Parliament six more times after his fall from grace. He was the president of the Privy Council in the 1990s. He was appointed Companion of the Order of Canada and was the Secretary of State for External Affairs under the Brian Mulroney government, a position that allowed him to have an influential place in international politics. His newest book, how We Lead, Canada in a Century of Change, is a powerful and passionate argument for the reassertion of Canada's place on the world stage. I think we are still trusted by a number of countries. Um, I think that uh, we are regarded as fair-minded. Uh, in other words, when we come into a conflict, there is, or into a situation, not even a conflict, there is a sense that we will be looking for a fair and reasonable solution rather than simply putting our case. Has it eroded? Yes, it has. In our interview, the Right Honourable Joe Clark talks about how the world has changed since he was Prime Minister and what implications that has on even the most remote, isolated communities in our country. Uh, there are no uh, Innu communities in the far north that uh, are unaffected by uh, what else goes around. Uh, international forces come into all our lives. Then later in the program, Joe Clark reflects on what his political career has taught him about the potential for good governance to be a force for good in the world. My experience in public life has led me, if anything, to be more hopeful. It's, I suppose, an informed uh, hope. But with that hope comes a caveat. Things can go drastically wrong when governments act without corresponding public debate. Case in point, according to Mr. Clark, is the current behavior of the Harper government. I think the uh, fundamental difference between Mr. Harper and any previous prime minister I can think of has to do with his view of the effectiveness of government. Uh, he is not um, 
Uh, he is a skeptic about government. All that and more on this episode of the CJSR edition. Up next, my interview with the Right Honorable Joe Clark. I think I have a problem on my hands. Admittedly, I don't consider myself a Joe Clark expert in any respect. I don't really know much about the guy, at least not enough to hold my own in an interview. I mean, I read his book, How We Lead, Canada in a Century of Change. But what makes Joe Clark tick? What are the ideas that shape his political perspectives? I couldn't possibly conduct an interview with the right honorable of anything before I did my research first. So before my interview, I enlisted the help of two political scientists at the University of Alberta. Steve Patton. My name is Steve Patton. I'm a political scientist. I teach here at the University of Alberta. And Joseph Ahoro. Well, my name is Joseph Ahoro. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science, and my research is in Canadian political parties. Dr. Steve Patton, Mr. Joseph Ahoro. Who is Joe Clark? Joe Clark is Joe Clark is what I would call uh, a red Tory. For those that don't know, is someone who still believes in hierarchical relationships, but with that tenant that if you have privilege, there was a responsibility to serve back into the community. And that puts him on the left of the the Conservative Party. He was somebody who was socially liberal. Um, he believed in relatively small government, but he wasn't a, a free market zealot. That's something that is indicative of red Tories, and I find that Joe Clark is one of the very few prominent politicians uh, that come from that perspective. And He believed that uh, politics had a role in our society, and he saw our society as, as, as a collection of communities, not as a collection of individuals and, and market operators. I mean, Joe Clark entered politics as a fan of of Diefenbaker and he entered in the uh, in the Stanfield era and he was he became leader in 1976 uh, the same year that Margaret Thatcher became leader of the conservatives in Britain and Joe Clark had a very different kind of conservatism in mind as leader than she did maybe he's the voice of sort of the softer conservatives but a lot of people were rallying behind Thatcherite conservatism and and he refused to go down that road and he refused right until the very end right until uh, the the turn of the 21st century, he was he was still pushing, pushing against, against that. that kind of conservatism, even the way it was becoming more popular. So sort of that champion of sort of softer conservatives. I, I hate to use the term uh, compassion conservatives, and that's sort of been tarnished by George W. Bush. I think the thing that stands out the most is his dogged determination to remain true to himself. Really a voice in the wilderness. Really a voice in the wilderness. Really a voice in the wilderness. His biggest impact was prolonging the life of red Toryism uh, for as long as it survived. In the end, he failed. Yeah, there's a variety of ways to uh, calculate this. Well, I, I think it's important if you're interested in following Clark's career to realize um, that there wasn't anything about the climate at the time that put him 
at the leadership of the party or as prime minister. In both cases, he almost won by default. Yeah, I mean, he has a very non-confrontational personality. He uh, came in third or fourth on the first ballot um, in the the conservative leadership race in 1976. And it was only because people rallied behind him that he finally won after about four ballots of, 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 of votes. I've spoken to him myself, and I found him to be very inviting, uh, very, fairly easygoing, the ordinary Joe, so to speak. At the, at the leadership convention. So he, he was sort of the the, pers- the compromise candidate because people's first choices weren't able to, uh, to be successful. Uh, and so maybe that helped. But it might also have something to do with the fact that, you know, he didn't come to uh, the leadership as a person of great vision. Um, he came just as a party stalwart who happened to win the leadership by uh, a process of elimination. And so I'm sure Joe Clark was aware of this and realized the responsibility he had to his supporters, but also to his nation. And then he won the election uh, because Trudeau lost it. Um, so he, he, didn't, he didn't really have a moment in time that was his. He just happened to find his way into the leadership and then into the prime minister's office for nine months. And their whole electoral strategy in 79 was to sort of write off Quebec and just focus on the English vote, which was gave them enough to squeak by into a minority status. But whenever you do that, like that's the issue about short-term electoral planning is that the long-term strategy is lost. There was nothing that really clearly defined him. He wasn't a politician motivated by a few issues or a particular vision. You know, when, when Joe Clark was elected, he promised uh, to lower taxes. We're going to reduce taxes. Uh, we're going to stimulate the economy, but then do something like that's very pragmatic by introducing like a gas tax. I mean, people now become disaffected thinking, well, they broke their promises. We're not going to support them next time. So, so he, he was, was in a real jam. jam. He was in a real jam. So, so he, he was, was in a real jam. jam. Well, I wasn't there at the time, but I mean, from, from my understanding, it was... Uh, it was a huge political blunder. It was a budget bill that didn't pass through. The, the fact that that he didn't reach out to, to the social credit members, uh, he didn't, you know, invite them into a coalition of any kind. He didn't even try to create an agreement such as, what can I do for you so that you'll support me for a year, for two years, uh, maybe for my entire mandate? He didn't do any of that. He had claimed that he wanted to govern as though he had a majority. He he just said, I'm going to govern as if I have a majority and I'll earn your respect at every step. I mean, that's not technically possible, but I think he just wanted to demonstrate this leadership, this sort of swagger that he could do what he could do. Um, but but then when one of those important steps came along, this important vote on, on a budget measure, um, without reaching out, there was no way he was going to get that through. In the reality, you need either the Social Credit Party to back you or the NDP to back you. And uh, neither of them were willing to do so in this budget. I think it had something to do with his naivety, his youthfulness, um, and uh, perhaps not having the, the, the kind of strength that he required in his own office to uh, point that out to him. So let that be a lesson for future prime ministers that are under minority government. Let that be a lesson for future prime ministers. Let that be a lesson for future prime ministers. Let that be a lesson for future prime ministers. Let that be a lesson for future prime ministers. Well, to the extent that he did regain his political stature, it was because uh, Joe Clark isn't a person of big ego. Um, and as much as he is a political hack through and through, he's been there his whole life, 
he sees politics as a way, uh, uh, an opportunity for public service. Uh, if we're trying to look at Joe Clark's uh, legacy in Canadian politics, I would say that his time as as the Secretary of External Affairs really shown, and uh, he should be given credit where credit is due. So um, when Brian Mulroney became Prime Minister, he was willing, like very few would, uh, to to serve and to take a back seat. Um, and Mulroney began to trust him. And so in foreign affairs and in relation to the constitutional file, he allowed Clark to, to take a leadership role within cabinet. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, it's a much more, uh, you know, focused uh, portfolio as opposed to ha- managing an entire country and a, and a fractious party. And so when you're juggling that many balls and knowing that you're being gunned at by other parties, it's an incredibly uh, tough ask to to do so. But when you're given a very focused agenda, a focused uh, portfolio, sometimes people, people perform very well. And um, it was good to see that he was able to do so. Um, so he, he, he built his own personal stature um, as somebody who's willing to serve and somebody who has, has, has values. Maybe not vision, but values. And I think that really made a difference in how people perceived him. It wouldn't be during his time as prime minister. It was so short-lived, but it was probably his second coming as the secretary of uh, external affairs. He, he, made, uh, he made differences at a number of important points in time. In the early 1980s, um, after the 1984 election, when he was a uh, foreign minister, he made a difference because he, you know, he, he was a foreign minister under Brian Mulroney while Brian Mulroney was starting to embrace free trade. And whatever you may make of the free trade agreement, I mean, that was under his stewardship as well. And so if, that, if there's any lasting legacy, I mean, the free trade agreement was a big one. Um, on a, the agenda other than free trade, you know, he, he really reached out and tried to be the liberal internationalist. He was the one who, who talked his government into having uh, Stephen Lewis, a, a former New Democrat, uh, become uh, an ambassador to the, the United Nations. He was very important in fighting apartheid. And so Canada was well positioned to really, you know, be that, uh, you know, that moral compass. And it was under Joe Clark, who was head of the anti-apartheid committee of the Commonwealth, that really pushed that. And the media at that time, South Africa at that time, really really vilified Joe Clark for stirring the pot. Uh, so he made a difference there, but no big impact, not not the kind of thing where you say, you know, Pierre Trudeau patriated our Constitution or anything like that. He also had a, a, a significant impact during the constitutional negotiations after the death of Meech Lake. Um, they ended up failing. The Charlottetown Accord, which he helped put everything in motion toward that, ended up failing. And there was also dealing with the famine in the Horn of Africa that Canada and Joe Clark's insistence, uh, they really punctuated that. He was an important player in a really important time in Canadian politics. I haven't looked over his most recent CV, but I understand he's sat on various boards, uh, international boards. He teaches at universities. He's received honorary doctorates. So sort of the common projection for most political elites once they leave office. Well, he's perceived as an elder statesman probably more than anything else because of this uh, perception that, that politics is about public service which uh, allows people to look at him as doing what he believes in as opposed to uh, uh, just advancing personal interests or aggressively advancing agendas. And I I think that really makes a difference. You know, I will put forward and say that he probably isn't as successful as other quote-unquote elder statesmen, and I would use Jimmy Carter as a good example. Now, you consider Jimmy Carter and the work that he has done globally. Like, he's gone into very difficult 
tenuous situations and released hostages or defused major situations. And I don't see Joe Clark doing um, that. He's also um, been trying to push um, what I think most people would call Canada's traditional uh, uh, stance on the world stage, uh, that liberal internationalist vision. And he's doing that at a time where um, we've got a government under Stephen Harper that's moving in a, in a different sort of direction. Who on the right is going to champion Joe Clark? Certainly not the Harper Conservatives. There's no more PC party. So he's really on his own. Um, and because uh, Clark's vision harkens back to the past, um, that you know allows him to be seen as somebody who's bringing forward you know uh, historical memory, uh, sound judgment, and, and so on. Um, um, it's not necessarily more sound than Stephen Harper's vision, even if many of us uh, appreciate it more than we appreciate Stephen Harper's vision. Um, but it, it does uh, it does come across as being sort of the elder statesman, reminding people of Canada's role in the world. Um, and, and a lot of people appreciate that. Joe Clark is not a politician who has left a legacy in the same way that somebody like Pierre Trudeau left a legacy. Uh, with patriating the Constitution, or Brian Mulroney left a legacy with uh, the free trade agreement with the, with the United States. I think it's it's partly a, a negative function of the fact that he was he didn't succeed as prime minister, and those are the standards that he's being sort of compared against. You know, Joe Clark's legacy. Um, in many ways, was the way in which he advanced conversations around Canada's place in the world, around how we conceive of Canada and what conservatism should mean. If you ask students of Canadian politics today and ask them who were their uh, uh, people that inspired them, I would, you'd find very few people saying it would be Joe Clark. In the end, the position he took in many of those conversations is on the losing side, at least for now. You know, I, I don't want to say he's a footnote in Canadian history or Canadian politics, but that's what's shaping out right now. He is figuratively a uh, voice in the wilderness. A voice in the wilderness. A voice in the wilderness. A voice in the wilderness. I'm Joe Clark, and I was privileged to serve as Prime Minister of Canada, as Secretary of State for External Affairs, and uh, as Minister responsible for constitutional change. Mr. Clark, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you very much. To begin, I want to start by being a little bit reflexive. In your newest book, How We Lead, you start by asking a sort of rhetorical question. To what do we aspire? Uh, Mr. Clark, in your opinion and in your experiences, to what do Canadians aspire to be today? I think most Canadians inspire, aspire to success in their own lives, which they uh, define in different ways. Uh, obviously, uh, for many people, material success, uh, call it survival, or in Canada, survival plus, uh, is uh, is important. Uh, I think there's a very interesting uh, dimension among uh, the large population of Canadians who come here from elsewhere, because they are particularly concerned about ensuring that their children have opportunities here that they did not have uh, themselves. Uh, I learned that as a member of parliament, speaking to people from, uh, from those communities. Um, what is interesting about Canada is our capacity for collective aspiration. And uh, I think one of the differences between ourselves and the United States, and that comparison is inevitable uh, when you live next door to a vibrant superpower like that, is that uh, because they have been a superpower, uh, everyone knows that their country uh, makes an evident uh, difference. 
And certainly in terms of ventures like moving into space or indeed initiatives they might take in international policy, there is a broader sense of public opinion on these things. It's not always informed, uh, but it's quite front and center. Uh, being an American is part of almost a personal identity. Uh, being a Canadian is not so assertive, uh, but I think that there is uh, nonetheless an aspiration uh, that is fairly common among Canadians, and that is not to be the exception, uh, as the Americans might aspire to be, but to be the good citizen, uh, whether at home or on a larger uh, scale. That doesn't apply to everyone, but I think it applies to a fairly broad cross-section of Canadians. Well, how does that then manifest itself in, in our daily lives? It's It has from the very beginning, partly I think because we were uh, in effect a pioneer country. Uh, certainly the first peoples in Canada were very communal in the way they uh, they approached things. And, um, uh, and to some degree, because we live in a winter country, uh, we have had to rely upon others more than, uh, than some other countries do. Quite literally, we had to do that. And uh, we went through a long period of time when uh, uh, people would do things together because that is the only way that uh, each one of them could have some opportunity to move forward. Uh, it has taken a very interesting form historically in Canada in our interest in cooperative movements. Uh, and they have sprung up uh, literally everywhere. Uh, sometimes they took a political manifestation. We're speaking in Alberta, uh, which had the United Farmers of Alberta government uh, for a long time. Uh, there was a clear manifestation of it in Quebec with Les, les Caisses Populaires, uh, and uh, it was the case indigenously uh, across the country. Uh, we were a country that, as a matter of public policy, uh, particularly in our early days, used collective capacity uh, to, do, to accomplish uh, attributes we could not have done alone. That's how we got Air Canada. That's how we got a national broadcaster. Uh, that's how we set up some of the other uh, crown agencies. Uh, and there is a more basic issue, I think, and that has to do uh, with our origins. Um, our neighbors to the south uh, moved to a new continent to put the old one behind them. Uh, we moved to a new continent to apply the values and the traditions of that old continent to a new surrounding. And that means that we have had a, a, a sense of connection uh, to others, either other places or other people. Uh, that I think has been a defining factor of uh, uh, of Canada. So, on the international dimension today, uh, where where does Canada place itself? That's an interesting question because uh, Canadians, if you look at individuals, place themselves very actively at the heart of the action. Uh, we're speaking in the immediate aftermath of response to uh, uh, to the disasters in the Philippines where Canadians, as happens time after time after time, are among world leaders in their contribution and their willingness to help. We're also, we place ourselves internationally because we come from international, we come from everywhere. And though we're the kind of country where you can be proud of who you are, where you are now, uh, but retain your connection and interest to the places you came from. So those, the past is not simply the past. There is a, is a way in which it is, uh, uh, it is connected. Um, we've always been a trading country, and uh, increasingly now uh, we're going into areas where Canadian commerce had not gone before, uh, to some degree in Asia, uh, 
clearly into Africa and elsewhere. Uh, and that means we're learning more and we're learning some of the characteristics uh, that help us in those other countries. Mr. Clark, is there a discrepancy b- between where we are, where we're currently placed on the international spectrum and where we could be or where we aspire to be? I think there's a discrepancy for two reasons. One is a deliberate policy decision by the current Harper government, uh, and they uh, are giving far more weight to our economic and our military presence uh, than they are to our diplomatic and our developmental presence. Uh, And I think we are better off when there is a balance. In effect, uh, we have capacities in all four, economics, uh, military, uh, diplomacy, and development. But we're only playing with half our deck, and uh, we're naturally going to be less efficient and uh, constructive uh, than if we were using all of our resources. But the other thing that is happening is that uh, the modern world is, uh, is changing, and um, the kinds of issues that are arising are different from those that characterized uh, either the, the intensity of the Cold War or even the post-war, post-Second World War period. And I believe that some of those new changes uh, are, uh, uh, I, I believe that some of Canada's particular talents and assets are more important in dealing with those new changes than they were even with the old. For example, uh, conflict now uh, is driven increasingly by differences among cultures. Where there is diversity, conflict is easy and very dangerous. Cooperation is not so easy, but essential and possible. And uh, we have been, for a variety of reasons, a country that has demonstrated cooperation among differences. That is because there's a more basic quality, and it is a fundamental respect of differences, which really has been part of Canada for a long time, but is now reflected in many of our laws and practices, uh, including uh, the Bill of Rights that Mr. Diefenbaker introduced and the Charter of Rights that was later introduced by uh, by Mr. Trudeau. Uh, But those are those are important and distinguishing qualities of the country that um, make it more possible for us to be involved with credibility in dealing with issues that might arise from diverse populations and the the conflicts that are often uh, natural when people have different uh, faiths or different uh, views or different uh, incomes. Uh, We uh, are among the people who, by nature and by experience, uh, can be very constructive in circumstances like that. In recent years, do you feel like we have deviated from that uh fundamental respect for difference? I don't think we have deviated uh, from that respect for difference. I think what has happened is that we have stopped regarding ourselves as a whole community. Uh, I look at the action of political parties in the past just as a point of reference to what happens now. Uh, The political parties of the days when I was active uh, sought to seek support everywhere in the country. Uh, They were genuinely pan-Canadian political parties. Uh, The progressive conservatives were, the liberals were, the NDP uh, under a leader like Ed Broadbent uh, were were definitely trying to do that. And that was partly because uh, it it, uh, 
there were votes everywhere, or we thought there were, but it was also because that was part of the Canadian duty. And what it did was uh, cause people to learn an immense amount about their country. I learned more about my country from being a member of a national political party as a young man, running into people who I thought were very different from me, but here we were members of the same political family. So there was a, a determination to try to come together. That's no longer the case. People now look not at the country, but at their base. Uh, and the base is, by, is of necessity particular, and it is exclusive. And it says there are people we don't want to be part of our political family. And the temptation is, if you're elected that way, uh, when you are governing, you will say, well, we're going to give preference to, our, our, to the people we know, to the members of our base. Whereas I think there was a greater tendency in the past to... Uh, uh, to try to uh, address the whole community. And the other thing that I argue fairly vigorously in my book is that because we treated ourselves as a whole community, we talked to one another. There were national conversations about important issues, and uh, those have dropped off, whether it's in first ministers' conferences, we haven't had one for a long time, uh, or whether it is in the work of royal commissions. Uh, the last one we had was a decade ago, a one-person royal commission. Uh, or whether it is in debate in Parliament, which is increasingly limited. Uh, again, uh, I can recall times when a controversial issue arose, for example, in uh, foreign policy, uh, when there would be a full-scale uh, committee inquiry into these things. In fact, in Central America, where Canada was able to make some important inroads years ago, uh, that was largely because a, a, a multi-party Committee of Parliament made recommendations, uh, which I and the government then uh, followed. Uh, we're doing less and less of that. So the sources, the opportunities for conversation are declining. And at the same time, we're becoming uh, once again locked into our uh, view of our place. That happens with a Charter of Values in Quebec. It happens with uh, movements that uh, want to uh, erect firewalls in a province like Alberta. Uh, I think that's a, a lamentable trend uh, because we are, uh, we are a built country. We are a country because our people have wanted us to be one. And in order to be one, uh, we have to be talking with one another, which again is why I'm trying to stimulate a conversation about international policy. Uh, maybe if we could uh, move forward just by talking perhaps a little bit more holistically, uh, what is the best framework for us to understand the world that we are living in today? We are together in, in a community. Uh, there is a national community. Uh, there is an international community, I'm sorry, that, um, uh, of which we are all part. There are no desert islands anymore. Uh, there are no uh, Innu communities in the far north that uh, are unaffected by uh, what else goes around. Uh, international forces come into all our lives. Um, a chicken in Guangzhou that infects a person who gets on a plane to Toronto uh, causes a, a terrible disease, SARS, to spread in Toronto and spread in Canada. Um, when uh, there is negotiation that looks like it might lead to agreement on nuclear matters with regard to Iran, uh, the price of oil uh, drops internationally, including with implications for uh, Canada. Uh, when there is discord in uh, any part of the world, there is the risk that that discord will take forms that can affect our lives here. That was not the case 30, 40 years ago. That is very much the case today. Mm. Does that pose any unique challenges to how we govern? 
those changes are related to a communications, uh, to a dramatic change in communication that also affects the way we govern, mm. and to a disappearance of a deference uh, that allowed decisions to be taken in all spheres by established institutions uh, and then not questioned. Uh, that was the case with churches. That was the case with, um, uh, with governments. That was the case in financial institutions. Uh, there was a sort of a, a reverence to uh, people who were, who were in authority then. Uh, that has declined in an age where more people know more and where more people understand the frailties of um, their former governors. Uh, so they are going to say, these people are not superhuman. Uh, in fact, we see their weaknesses uh, too. And I uh, have a, a view that is as valid as, as they do. That's a very healthy thing in many ways uh, because it means that uh, if there were abuses before, uh, there's a way to control them or to see what is going on. It also is very critical to aspiration. Uh, people who, who uh, previously might have thought they were doomed to be on the sidelines understand that uh, there is an opportunity for them to have a, a major role. But it is a major problem for international governance. How does one deal with that? I've thought often, and I'm not sure how we give form to this, we talk about leadership in very old-fashioned ways. Oh. We talk about leadership in terms uh, of the, uh, uh, the unusual person who goes to the front and causes other people to follow that person to the front. Uh, and undoubtedly, there are going to be people like that from time to time, but that's no longer the model that it once was. Uh, for one thing, uh, uh, there are going to be a lot of people who aspire to leadership, who have the talent for leadership on different kinds of issues. It's occurred to me that we need to consider what might constitute followership uh, in, a, in a world like this. Uh, uh, there's a better way to phrase this, but it seems to me that there are times to know, uh, there are times when we have to know, here's where we should assert our particular talent and uh, want to guide a discussion, and times when we should say, these people, this country, this experience uh, is better f uh, suited to uh, take uh, the lead on this issue, and uh, I serve everyone better, including myself, if I am prepared to follow their better idea. That's pretty hard to, to um, uh, square with the idea of the standalone leader who's going to radiate uh, by the power of personality or ideas uh, a force that others will feel bound to follow. People are feeling less bound to follow others' ideas, and so we have to work out some sense that if you are going to lead on something, uh, you're going to have to let me lead on something else, and we are both going to have to let a wide range of others take the leadership in, in questions where, uh, where they have special capacities. That isn't to say that we should absolve, suspend our judgment or absolve our independence. It should, it's simply a recognition uh, that we can't all lead on everything. <laughs> we have different talents, and uh, we have to respect that uh, not only are we strong in some things, stronger than others, but others are stronger than we are on some on some questions. I, I really uh, I like in in your book how you particularly make the difference between hard and soft power, and you compel your readers to uh, think of Canada as a country that should lead beside, as opposed to in front or behind. Can you expand upon that a little bit more? I think that the world of superpowers is over. 
we're, we're going to have stronger nations and, and less strong nations in the future, but and the United States will be a strong nation and China will be a strong nation and there's a large range of others. But we're not going to have a superpower as we have had before. Uh, and in addition, the decision makers at the table are no longer just nation states. Uh, to a very substantial degree, they also include entities that are not state actors. Uh, some of them are non-governmental organizations, uh, ranging from the Red Cross to the Gates Foundation to Greenpeace to you name it, uh, which mobilize uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of people uh, to do things uh, that are, are very important, but they also have an influence on events that others don't. Their views have to be taken into account. They were not on the, on the map uh, 25 uh, years ago. And that means the table is larger. Uh, it means that um, uh, the head of the table is sometimes directing traffic uh, and that some of the real and creative work, the compromises that are essential, are going to occur by other participants. Uh, this question of deference to a leadership is not as uh, profound and guiding as it was before. And in effect, this is what this is a this leadership from beside is what Canada has exercised for a long time because we didn't have the power uh, to assert our right to the to the head of a table. Very often we were asked to go to the head of a table because we were better at getting agreement uh, than others. But if the if if the if the office of chair attached to your political power, uh, we were not often going to be there. We weren't a permanent member hmm. of the general of the. Uh, Security Council. We were uh, an elected member when we got elected. Well, we didn't have the power. What we did have is a reputation. Um, and some have said that that reputation has been eroded in recent years. Uh, in your opinion, what is the reputation of our country on the international sphere? I think we are still trusted by a number of countries. Um, I think that uh, we are regarded as fair-minded. Uh, in other words, when we come into a conflict there is, or into a situation, not even a conflict, there is a sense that we will be looking for a fair and reasonable solution rather than simply putting our case. Has it eroded? Yes, it has. And it's eroded because we have drawn back from the organizations where those kinds of, of compromises, often difficult compromises, occur. Uh, we close down embassies, as in Iran. Uh, we are not as active or constructive in an organization like the Commonwealth. Uh, the Prime Minister chose not to attend uh, the Sri Lanka heads of government meeting. The British Prime Minister, by contrast, attended and used his presence to draw attention to some of the concerns uh, that bother Canada. Uh, but, but the British uh, Prime Minister addressed those concerns directly and gave momentum to a genuine discussion. The Canadian Prime Minister stayed home. Naturally, when you do that, uh, your your reputation is going to decline. What occurs to me about the Sri Lanka um, Sri Lanka conversation is that one of the reasons uh, that the prime minister's office cited that they wouldn't go to Sri Lanka is because of the human rights violations that happened to the Tamil Tamil people, and that's sort of a more inward-looking approach in solidarity with your own. Country. Well, but but how do you deal with human rights violations? Uh, from a distance. Uh, you have to deal with them directly. There's a, a sense sometimes, I think, in this government that if they declare a position of principle, others will snap into following that uh, principle. That's not the way the world works. You have to make your case. You have to go in and say, this is wrong, and um, you should be looking at this. Uh, and that this is not theoretical. This is what happened in, 
in Europe uh, in the period leading to the end of the Cold War. Uh, there were arrangements that, f that caused Warsaw Pact nations, allies of the Soviet Union, to come to the table with Western nations where their records on human rights and other things were examined critically. Often they didn't like what they heard. Often they resisted it. But nonetheless, they had to hear it. Uh, they knew that if there was going to be progress on something that was important to them, they probably had to give ground on something, something else. It was not declaratory. Uh, it was actual working out agreement on difficult issues. And that's the way the world works uh, in every serious situation, simply standing back and uh, uh, stating a position and then going away gets you nowhere. Are there other mechanisms that we can assert soft power? Oh, I think simply gathering people. I, I, y yes, I, to answer your question directly. To me, what soft power means is using your reputation and your persuasive skills and the power of your argument or your example to cause others to change their behavior in, uh, in ways that uh, lead everyone forward or that lead toward a solution to a problem. It isn't forcing people. It isn't threatening them. It is actually sitting down and reasoning with them as to, uh, as to how progress can be found. And, uh, and it also involves taking a look at the problems they face, which they have to overcome, problems of poverty, uh, other kinds of, of uh, problems of internal discord, where, uh, or problems of a failure of institutions. Uh, uh, part of the contribution Canada has made, for example, in China has been to set examples of how a public service should function, uh, how human rights should be respected, how courts should function. Uh, this is a process of engagement and example, and uh, it's increasingly important in an age when you can't force people to do as much as superpowers used to be able to force them to do. This is the CJSR edition. My name is Matt Hergy. My guest today is the 16th and youngest ever elected Prime Minister of Canada, the Right Honourable Joe Clark. In the second part of our conversation, Joe Clark looks back at his own political career and then looks forward to talk about the challenges that Canada as a nation will face as we move into the 21st century. I want to rewind then uh, before we look forward uh, to uh, June 4th, 1979. And that was the day before your 40th birthday that you were sworn in as Canada's youngest prime minister. What were you thinking on that day, if you could recall? It's hard to recall. It was obviously a great honor, and that is a day of honor. And of, and of some celebration, we were forming a new government. Uh, I took very seriously both the specific promises we had made uh, to people, and we tried to honor those, or in a couple of cases where we found we couldn't, we were very frank that we could not, uh, uh, not proceed, but we had a sense of being on a, uh, uh, on a mission. Uh, I was aware of being a minority government, um, I was probably more aware of it in terms of not reflecting the whole of the country, which I tried to, uh, for which I tried to compensate in the formation of my cabinet, than I was in a parliamentary sense. I probably, in retrospect, I should have taken more account of the dynamics of a minority parliament, uh, but I was 39 at the time, or just 40, and um, uh, and I had a great sense of honor. Uh, one would that. Um, uh, I had uh, won an election, uh, a fair, free election against a formidable ally, and that we had changes that we uh, uh, should undertake. 
I imagine that you might have uh, taken stock of where you hoped the country would be in 30 years, 34 years. Is Canada today what you imagined it would become? What we really did, I think, was take a look at issues which we thought uh, needed to be approached in a different way. Uh, one of those had to do with relations among our provinces and really major groups. Uh, Mr. Trudeau had taken a quite confrontational approach to, uh, uh, to both those elements of our federation, and I was trying to find a more conciliatory way. I, I was sometimes accused of weakness on that question, but I was prepared to run that risk because I thought it was a far more productive way uh, to proceed. Uh, we also had some specific proposals, as I say, that we had introduced that we thought, uh, particularly in a minority government, we had to, uh, uh, had to deal with uh, early. Did we sit down and look at what the country might be in 30 years? No, we didn't do that specifically. Uh, we did try to examine where we could be more effective in the short term and uh, in, in the immediate term. And, uh, and, and follow those, those courses. Is the country different from what I thought it might be? Uh, yes, in some ways, there have been uh, surprises, uh, but surprises are part of life. And, um, and I suppose in a very basic way, uh, this is at its heart, the country I thought it was in 1979. And indeed through my parliamentary career, I've been disappointed by very particular things, but the qualities of this country, a country that sees itself as a community, a country that by and large respects others, a country that is a very hopeful and real example of respecting people who are different, uh, those qualities are there and they remain uh, very valuable. Can you talk about those specific things that you uh, feel disappointed by? I'm disappointed by the tone of debate in uh, Parliament, the tone of public debate. Uh, I uh, am disappointed about various specifics, uh, things that, we w that I had hoped we might do uh, that we were not uh, able to do. Um, I'm disappointed about the sort of decline of aspiration in public policy. Uh, whatever one thought of the, uh, the approaches to public policy of of the Diefenbaker, Pearson, uh, Trudeau, Mulroney, Clark uh, governments, uh, we tried to move the, for the country forward in addition, in, in the context of uh, what we thought it could become. Uh, it was a broad view, uh, controversial in many cases, but a broad view and a bold view. And I think that our public policy has become much more limited and inward looking and in the worst sense of the word, partisan, dealing with a part rather than the whole of the country. So I'm disappointed in that. But I should make it clear that those are not overwhelming disappointments. I, I, my experience in public life has led me, if anything, to be more hopeful. It's, I suppose, an informed uh, hope uh, rather than just a nat the natural hope I brought to office. Uh, but I've seen agreement reached uh, in particularly the Charlottetown negotiation, but elsewhere by people whom you would expect to disagree. But when we actually talked to one another, uh, we found agreement. I've seen democracy work uh, to a quite robust degree, including again in the Charlottetown Accord, uh, when a proposal that was handed down uh, by leaders was rejected by the, by the public. 
Uh, I didn't like that much at the time, but it was a very healthy uh, development in our democracy. I asked that question about forward looking into the future because one of your campaign slogans in uh, 1979 was it's time to it's time for a change. Give the future a chance. So I imagine there's there's some part of, about what you were thinking about then, which was more forward-looking. Oh, of course. We think most of our policies were forward-looking. We think that uh, uh, we thought that our approach, we might have been wrong on uh, on mortgage tax uh, deductibility, was forward-looking. We thought a fiscally responsible budget was forward-looking. A phrase I would prefer to use is not my own, but one used by Sir John A. Macdonald, who founded my party and my country. And he said regularly to his sometimes skeptical supporters, look a little ahead, my friends. And I think that has to be the uh, has to be and often has been uh, the motive of uh, Canadian governments. We have a lot to look ahead to. But if we don't, we can get mired down or we can retreat into our parts. In 1979, in an interview with the CBC, uh, just months after you had taken the prime minister's office, you were quoted as saying, I'm just a prime minister, not a magician. Um, what are the challenges that are inherent in uh, in being the prime minister of Canada when there are certain checks and balances to what you can do and what you can accomplish in a term? We have fewer checks and balances in Canada than we need. Granted. Uh, and uh, I think the limitations are in the nature of the issues. Uh, they always uh, seem simpler from a distance and they become more complex. And you have to find your way through to, uh, uh, to moving them. One of the reasons I admire Mr. Mulroney, with whom I've had uh, personal and some policy disagreements, not many policy disagreements, uh, is his boldness. He had a vision of how things would move forward. And he was pretty practical about uh, uh, how uh, how one did that. I think that's a, a very critical part of um, of, uh, of governing in the country. In a recent interview at the Ottawa Gazette, Mel Cap, a highly respected former clerk of the Privy Council under Jean Chrétien, said of the current government that, quote, ideology doesn't need analysis. And if you have answers, you don't need questions. Does that square with your observation? I think it's a very ideological government, and uh, yes, I think they're not very much interested in uh, in opposing views. They uh, uh, they came to view they came to office with certain uh, things they were determined to do. Sometimes they did them outright. Sometimes they've sort of crept up on them or done it uh, when they were highly frustrated with something. Uh, but I don't think that um, they pay as much attention to evidence as a modern government should. Then why has the political and Civil, even civil dialogue in our country deteriorated so badly? I think it has a lot to do with two factors, uh, three factors. One is a media factor. Uh, it is hard to have reflective conversations in, a, in an instant, in an age where there is uh, instantaneous reporting, where every single misstatement is, uh, is played up far more uh, significantly than the, than the substantive argument that one was uh, trying to make. Uh, the interest in playing to a base rather than the whole on the part of the government is very important uh, because uh, that causes other people to play to their base rather than to the whole, and we become there becomes a narrower uh, uh, view of the world. I think that in terms of civil society, there is something of a fear factor. Uh, there is a risk to be run if one uh, is seen to be disagreeing with the uh, with the government of the day. 
one could argue that there was always some element of that, but I think it's become, particularly with formal civil society, I think it's become more the case, and it's quite, uh, it's quite dangerous. I don't think there is the kind of inherent interest in an institution which, on the one hand, can hold you accountable when you don't want to be held accountable, that was there before, that's the, the institutional belief, the belief in the value of the institution. I don't think that's as, uh, as strong. And frankly, I don't think there is as much interest in the opinion of others around that table as uh, there has been in past governments. Uh, one of the factors that occurs when you uh, hold high office is that you learn dimensions of things you hadn't seen before. Uh, the picture changes. Reality is different from what you... Uh, you believed, and you you govern in the interests of reality rather than your former belief. I think this government is less inclined to do that. I think the uh, fundamental difference between Mr. Harper and any previous prime minister I can think of has to do with his view of the effectiveness of government. Uh, he is not um, uh, he is a skeptic about government, mm -hmm. and so his uh, his view is to uh, to limit its role. Uh, rather than to apply it where it's appropriate. Uh, and I think it is, there's an irony uh, that someone who is uh, highly skeptical of government is in charge of running one. And I think that that is, um, uh, that is part of the explanation of the way he has, has sought to respond to his election results. The other thing that is curious about him, uh, that is worth noting about his approach, is that I don't think there is the same inherent respect for other institutions uh, on the basis of the evidence that was there previously with other prime ministers. Every prime minister is tempted to allow uh, his or her own power, the power of the prime minister's office, the Privy Council office, to grow. And to more or less degree, that has happened with everyone. But that was almost always accompanied by uh, a respect for parliament, a respect for the limitations upon power, a respect for the provinces and, and cooperation with them. That is much less evident, particularly with regard, in Mr. Harper's case, with regard to, uh, uh, to his parliament and to his party. I find that interesting because uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau was, uh, was known for a very heavy-handed approach to his cabinet, and well, he, you certainly have disagreements with him. Oh, I think, he, in fact, uh, he listened very carefully to many many of his ministers. You're right, there were some heavy-handed approaches. There was one Jean Chrétien will never remember, never forget when he was finance minister and economic policy was changed without a conversation with him. Uh, but by and large, uh, one of the things that struck me about Mr. Trudeau, partly because he was an intellectual force, was that he was interested in the ideas of different people. So I think he brought the hammer down quite often. He certainly brought the hammer down occasionally on Parliament, uh, but he answered questions on the floor of the House of Commons. I put questions to other prime ministers who did not answer. Uh, and uh, he showed more. Uh, he was not a paragon. I don't hold him up as, a, as an example uh, for everyone to follow on every issue. But you've asked a specific question about his heavy handedness. And I think while that occurred, uh, my point is more valid, that there was uh, a respect for the institutional framework uh, that is not as evident today. You write in your book that as our society becomes busier and more complex, there's a tendency to relax the priority that we assign to understanding, persuading, and cooperating with communities. So this sort of goes full circle to the beginning of our conversation. Um, and we start to gaze inward, uh, you argue, which as 
for a country as large as Canada and as geographically diverse as Canada is a dangerous trend, according to you. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I'll try to. Uh, part of that has to do with modern technology, which we thought would broaden our view of things. And I think, in fact, uh, in many cases, it causes us to look more deeply into what already interests us rather than to look more broadly at things that we don't know. Uh, and that arises in a range of fields. If you happen to be an environmentalist, uh, you become more deeply involved in the environmental issue, and the risk arises that you're going to treat with real skepticism people who come at the same issue from a different point of view. The same could be said of a business leader or a resource company. Uh, I think in individual behavior, uh, the Internet opens such uh, fascinating opportunities for us to know more about what already what we already are interested in. Our time, our capacity to look at other things uh, diminishes. A contributing factor is the decline in faith in the political system, uh, in, the, in the idea that results will be by and large fair. Uh, and I think there's a, a, a sense that uh, you have to fight for your corner uh, more than had been the case before. If you fight for your corner, you're not fighting for the whole, and that is a risk. Um, I think a major factor now is that people are much busier than they were. Uh, they have children to raise. They have things that they have to do. Uh, their focus goes there rather than upon uh, the concern of their neighbor, whether that's an immediate neighbor or a, or a larger one. These are all modern factors that are balanced by the extraordinary advantages of the modern age, where there is so much new to do. Where if you, um, I mean, someone asked me the other day, are you, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the way the world is happening? I'm very optimistic. I admit something awful could happen, uh, but something awful can always happen. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting now is that so many new doors and opportunities uh, are being opened. But we assume that because they're being opened, uh, they're receiving equal attention. And I think a lot of us, instead of focusing on these new possibilities, are inclined to either be skeptical about them or to hunker down in our own pre-established preferences. What's at stake if that uh, trend continues? Well, it's particularly dangerous for us because it is easy for us to, uh, uh, to fraction. I'm saying fraction, not fracture, uh, as a country, and begin to uh, look at ourselves as, as less than whole. And then we become just a place where people park. Uh, in a sense, the, a real risk for Canada is that we will become a sort of a gated community. Uh, we will go out in the world to earn our living. Uh, we will come home and lock the door behind us and try to live our private lives as, uh, as in, an, in, a, in a relatively isolated way. Uh, that's an option open to a wealthy country, particularly one that still considers itself far from the fray uh, that, that uh, preoccupies other people. And uh, if a country is about a state of mind, if a country is aspirational, uh, if a country is about a community that wants to be better than it was, uh, or as good as it can be, uh, then that's a very dangerous trend. My final question, uh, as we look forward into the 21st century, what challenges do you foresee we will face uh, given our current political, economic, and social climate? As people become more focused upon their own capacities and aspirations, there is a risk that they will 
uh, see that, that their view of a community will be diminished, either in that they see community less or that the communities they see are more narrow than they, than they need to be. That's one issue. I think there is an increasing threat of disorder in the world uh, because uh, the temptation to, uh, again, look, each of us look inward uh, is, uh, remains strong. And that inwardness is not simply in rich nations or indeed in nations at all. Uh, part of the reason that um, uh, fervor uh, is effective in, in, uh, among people of various faiths is that uh, they are inclined to focus upon their particular view of the world and its worth uh, rather, than upon a, rather than treat with something approaching equal respect people who have different views. And I think that is becoming a more volatile uh, factor in the world, which is one of the reasons uh, that countries with a, cons with a capacity for conciliation uh, need to be more engaged. Right Honorable Joe Clark, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of the CJSR edition. Thanks for tuning in. This week's program was produced by Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, with assistance from me, Matt Hergy in the studios of CJSR FM 88.5, Community Radio in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Thank you very much today to Dr. Steve Patton, Mr. Joseph Ahoro, and of course, the Right Honorable Joe Clark. His book, How We Lead, Canada in a Century of Change, is available now. For all of us here at CJSR FM 88, thanks again for tuning in, and have a great weekend.